Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are on December the 4th. It's a nice warm lunchtime in California on December the 4th in our post-Trump age. But of course, the post-Trump age is not a post-COVID age. And it's not even at this point a post-2020 age. Uh, And the news today is, as so often, rather disturbing. Um, The the November job market was slowed. um, And yet, on the other hand, there seems to be, at least in political terms, some change. Pelosi announced this morning that she sees momentum towards a stimulus deal. The Democrats, I think, are bringing their numbers down from a couple of trillion to maybe a trillion. And meanwhile, the politics of inanity continues. Uh, AOC now uh, is involved in a $58 tax the rich sweatshirt uh, uh, story, which I think will increasingly become, or these kinds of stories will become a feature of the Biden age. So everything's up for grabs in the Biden age. Uh, One group who are very much focused, I think, on pushing Biden to the left, and I, I hope that's a fair observation, I don't mean that critically, is Demos. Um, Sabil Rahman is the uh, president of uh, Demos, and uh, he's talking to us from his home in Brooklyn or his office in, in Brooklyn. Um, Sabil came on my, or, or Raman came on my uh, radar, so to speak, uh, last month with a really interesting piece um, in, uh, in, in, uh, in the Atlantic about his argument of, of rebuilding American infrastructure, an attack on American privatization. He's written a number of books. Uh, about civic power and reinventing American democracy. Sabil, um, is there a need really to entirely do away with all the privatization of the last 30 years in America? Well, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. And um, it's such an important question, especially now, as you mentioned in your intro, right? We're in this COVID moment still. Uh, And if you think about it, so many of the reasons why this has been such a devastating pandemic for communities has entirely to do with our decades-long fascination with privatization and uh, and our uh, American opposition or hostility to equitable, inclusive public services. So if you think back, think about, you know, why is it that the infection rate and the mortality rate for COVID is so much higher in Black and Brown communities across the country? One uh, big part of that has to do with comorbidities, right? The way in which our economy is structured to increase the health risks, the pollution risks, the the, um, uh, the kind of uh, limited uh, access to uh, public infrastructure. That is the case in a lot the way a lot of our cities are designed for Black and Brown communities. And if you look at 
What's happened to our healthcare system, a big reason why the healthcare system has gotten overwhelmed is, is precisely because of decades of uh, both privatization and consolidation of the healthcare uh, sector. You know, we have fewer hospital beds uh, active right now in uh, in the United States. Our hospital bed capacity is much less than it was even 20, 30 years ago. And that has everything to do with uh, privatization and consolidation in the healthcare uh, sector. Uh, same story you could say about schools, same story you could say about uh, uh, mass transit and like, you know, kind of across the board, we have just uh, essentially built an economy that is designed for people who have enough money already that they don't need to access public infrastructure. And so that leaves the rest of us uh, in a really difficult position, especially when a crisis like this one hits. Let me ask, let's step back a moment, um, Sabil. One of the surreal things about this year is however bad the economy is, however bad the news is, Wall Street seems to continue to go up. Uh, today, uh, nothing to do with uh, AOC, but um, today, uh, in spite of all the bad news about jobs in November, the markets are up. Is there a parallel world here where on the one hand we have a formal economy and on the other hand we have an American society and the two are just out of sync with one another? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things that I think we need to learn coming out of this crisis is that the stock market is not the economy, right? That uh, that divergence that we're seeing, the market's going up. Uh, but if you just look around at what's actually happening in our cities, in our communities, in our towns, um, this is the worst economic collapse uh, in a century, if not more. And so we uh, that divergence that you talked about, I think, is more an indicator of how the the world of finance and investment and sort of the, the um, institutional investors, private equity funds and so on, and the, the, the uber rich, that is a whole nother world where for, for those folks, actually things are great, um, but for everybody else, it's not that's not at all the case. It's uh, another example of this is what you know, people are calling this a K-shaped recovery. Uh, by that, what they mean is that you have one set of people who are, their income and their job prospects are going back up or creeping back up and everybody else where it's still getting worse. Uh, and really just the, uh, an accelerator of the divergences of inequality in our country. Sabil, you, uh, you, you talk about the uber rich, um, and of course that can be taken in one of two ways. Either people are horribly rich, and I mean that in a, in a, in a critical way, like Bezos or Musk worth hundreds of billions of dollars. It's unimaginable for, for mortals like you or I, or they're rich, from companies like Uber, the tech companies, is one of the biggest challenges um, in this public-private divide in America and the need to, to, to challenge the privatization of, of life in America? Is it the digital economy? Uh, last um, uh, last uh, week, we had uh, uh, a woman on, um, Talia uh, Stroud from Civic Signals. Uh, it's a new group based in um, based in Austin, Texas, and they're focusing on creating a public digital realm. What is the role of Silicon Valley in the crisis of of the public in America in 2020? Yeah, it's such an important question. I think we're used to thinking about the tech sector as a separate thing, right? It's Facebook, it's Google, it's Amazon. Um, first of all, those companies are a big part of 
the inequalities that we're facing right now. All of these uh, big tech companies have grown tremendously during the middle of this crisis uh, and consolidated further market dominance. Uh, you know, think Amazon is such a good example. Uh, but I think there's a way in which the 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 new digital economy it's actually it's everywhere and it is exacerbating accelerating these divergences. So take what's happening in the workplace, for example. In increasingly more and more workplaces look like Uber, where the employer is able to surveil workers, track them down to the microsecond, where more and more workers are uh, seeing full-time employment with benefits being uh, ditched as a business model and instead moving to these kinds of precarious gig-based uh, employment models, uh, really exploiting loopholes and gaps in the law. Uh, and so there's the, the reality of what's happening in a lot of industries is actually um, echoing or following the lead of what Silicon Valley companies have uh, pioneered, which is an extremely extractive form of capitalism uh, premised on uh, vacuuming up a lot of wealth and resources from workers and from communities uh, into the investors and the, the, the uber rich at the top. So Sabil, how do we, how do we create a, a, a public digital space? Um, in my conversation with, uh, with, the, with Talia, we imagined the, the digital version of, of Central Park in, in New York City. You're in Brooklyn as we speak, so you're very familiar with this image. Um, what does that look like? Is it Wikipedia? It's certainly not Facebook or Twitter, is it? Yeah, I think it looks like a couple of things. Um, and of course, uh, Talia and their group have been doing a lot of great work on this. Uh, you know, there have been a number of people thinking about this too. Um, so number one, I think there's a, a and a, a need for a kind of like public option version of some of these infrastructures. So this is the public park analogy. Uh, folks have, there have been various proposals about like what a um, kind of plain vanilla uh, basic infrastructure that is for um, sharing so social information, what that might look like. Uh, so there's the kind of like the public version that everybody can access that is open to all. I think the second piece is we actually need to think about how we regulate the business models of a lot of these tech companies to ensure that public values are met. So if you think about uh, transportation, for example, like 120 years ago, 130 years ago, uh, a lot of the transportation infrastructure was run by private companies, right? But it there was a realization that actually we all need that. We need to be able to access that in order to be full and equal members of the economy and of the society. And so we actually are going to uh, make them into public utilities. We're going to uh, regulate them, ensure fair pricing, ensure everybody has uh, free and equal access to them. And that requires law. That requires uh, different kind of rules of the road, right? It's not anything goes. And so that's a, another piece that I think needs to happen. So, you know, for example, if it, on Amazon, like Amazon can't do whatever it wants to its the buyers and sellers that are operating on its platforms. There's going to need to be uh, different regulations in place uh, to ensure that it serves, that infrastructure serves uh, the public need, the public good. And I assume, Sabil, that you are also sympathetic to a lot of the the antitrust winds that are are blowing now uh, through think tanks like your own and through Washington, D.C. We've had a number of, of authors on the show with new books about the need to resurrect antitrust, particularly in terms of companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook and Apple. Yeah, I think it's so important to have that debate keep moving forward. And, you know, so many folks have been leading on this, you know, Zephyr Teachout, Tim Wu, uh, uh, among others. Zephyr Teachout was actually on the show with him. Yeah, and, um, you know, I think that's exactly one of the key policy issues to put pressure on. So if you, you know, think about it this way, we, we like to talk about the free market 
you know, whatever. But the truth is, it's not a free market. It's not a free economy. We're living in Amazon's economy. We're living in Facebook's public sphere. We're living in Google's world. And they get to make the decisions about what serves them, and we all have to deal with it, right? The, re- the reality is if we want the economy to serve us, to serve the public, we're going to need to, A, cut those companies down to size, right? Break up the concentrations that uh, to create more competitive environment. And then B, make sure that whatever infrastructures are left that we actually want to keep, that they are regulated so that they serve the public. And so if you look at the new anti-monopoly debates, for example, the House has been uh, holding hearings over this last year, uh, issued a really uh, impressive uh, report from uh, Chairman Cicilline's subcommittee. Uh, there are a lot of great proposals in there that involve both breaking up of concentrated corporate power and using some of these uh, public utility style regulations to ensure fair and equal access. So Bill, is the crisis as much cultural as economic? Um, Yesterday, we had Robert Putnam on the show, co-author of a new book called, his new book called The Upswing, which suggests that the crisis in America is a crisis, a cultural crisis of, of narcissism, of isolation, of fragmentation. Um, Is Putnam right, Putnam as one of America's leading communitarians, that the challenge is to rethink citizenship and community in the 21st century? Putnam, when I talked to him, was rather ambivalent on the capitalism front. His argument was, we've always had capitalism in America. And uh, in the 19th and the 20th century, and progressivism challenged uh, the old deal in the 19th century, and we can do it again. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of both, right? Like, I mean, there's no question that as a, uh, for a democratic society, especially a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious democratic society to thrive, we need just a baseline uh, moral community, right? Where we see one another as uh, co-equal members of this society, treat each other with uh, equal dignity, understand one another's fates to be linked, right? My well-being and my uh, uh, participation support depends on a society that also ensures the well-being of others around me. Um, that's that's certainly a moral and ethical uh, piece. But I guess what I would say is that there are rules and institutions and laws that either make that real or make that a lie. And a lot of what we're living with now is the end result of 40, 50 years of public policy that has been advanced by the far right, by the corporate uh, middle, right? Uh, policies going back to the deregulation uh turn of the 70s to um, the kind of move to heavy financialization of our economy in the 90s and 2000s. But those are public policy moves that actually accelerated or exacerbated this uh, fragmentation, right? So when you talk about um, the, the split between the stock market and what people are experiencing or between the uber wealthy and everybody else, those splits are a product of policy. And we could have different policies that actually bring our uh, shared experiences more in line, which then allows us to actually see one another as equals, right? So it's like, you, you don't get one without the other. I don't think it's enough to say, um, you know, to exhort people to treat one another uh, as uh, as uh, kind of uh, your co-citizens. Like, yes, you should do that. But the real issue here is that we have policies that have been designed to replicate and reinforce racial and economic hierarchies of various kinds. Sabil, there'll be some people watching this. I don't want to put words into their mouth, but they'll be saying to themselves, uh, there's just another socialist, anti-capitalist, someone in favor of 
public public control of everything. Um, so, so two questions for you: Are you a socialist? Perhaps in 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 the Bernie camp. And secondly, are you a sewer socialist? I, I love that op-ed uh, from a couple months ago. So. Um, I mean, I think of myself as a social democrat, but I think the real issue here, right, is um, you mentioned, you alluded to sewer socialism. So if we rewind back to the early 20th century, right, before the New Deal, before FDR, like one of the big moves in this country was to actually uh, create municipal control, municipalization of the sewer systems, of water yeah, systems. In places like Milwaukee. Yeah, absolutely. And this was a bread and butter uh a uh, set of things that kind of ideas that percolated up from cities and then states tried it. And then these those uh, experiments really became, I would argue, the foundation for the New Deal itself, right? Tennessee Valley Authority and, and the Hoover Dam and uh, big New Deal investments like that. So I, I mentioned that history because I would argue that this type of collective public infrastructure that serves all of us, uh, the kind of uh, clawing back from this kind of rampant uh, private extractive control by uh, the kind of the worst kinds of uh, monopolists and, and uh, corporate overlords. Uh, That's a very American thing, right? We have our own homegrown American tradition of social democracy, like in the sewer socialist movement of the, the, or the progressive movement of the early 20th century. Um, and a lot of these ideas sort of have uh, come back in different points in time, right? The, a lot of the civil rights movement, I, we think of that in terms of um, the Civil Rights Act and anti-discrimination law, but you know, the full vision of the civil rights movement and the, the March for Jobs and Justice uh, in the 60s also had a lot to say about economic citizenship, right? Economic membership uh, and the kinds of public investments that we needed to make that happen. That so I feel like back, it's very uh, right, That goes back, I think, to, uh, to Putnam and, and his arguments uh, in the upswing about uh, community and citizenship. Perhaps AOC, if she really wants to make money on, on garments, uh, rather than a tax the rich sweatshirt, she should have, I am a sewer socialist sweatshirt. I would, I would spend $58 on that one. Um, where are we going to start uh, uh, on, on this, uh, um, Sabil? Is it with a basic workers' bill of rights? Is that the core foundation of this um, infrastructural reform that you're calling for? Yeah, so um, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, one is, you you know, uh, uh, just to go back to- The Bill of Rights. Right, so um, just to go back to uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez for a moment, I mean, I actually think uh, that's one of the key things that we need to do. She's been, in my view, one of the most effective communicators and champions of this uh, way of thinking about the economy and our society, right? Just kind of really um, not mincing words about what, how absurd it is and how uh, immoral our current economic system is and what we need to do differently. So I think there's a narrative piece of like, just let's make the argument unabashedly clearly about that we need to have a different world. Um, the the bills that you mentioned, I think that especially coming out of this COVID-19 crisis, I feel like there are really two or three um, uh, tips of the spear, right, where we really need to push. One is this idea of uh, care, our care infrastructure. Um, the National Domestic Workers Alliance and others have been really pushing on this, right? How do we reimagine the way we support care for elder folks in our communities and for children uh, and for all of us, right? It's not just um, about like, uh, uh, technical right. so an essential 
an essential workers bill of rights i couldn't agree more i think it's very hard to argue against that what about a a, a, a green new deal uh uh, can we throw that one in too? We had yeah, Kate Aronoff from the New Republic yeah. on the show a couple of months ago, arguing very strongly in favor of that. Is that the second essential reform? Yeah, I, I think it is. You know, the climate crisis is so ever present, and it's uh, it's really a, a a way of speaking to the immediate issues of climate, but also our immediate economic issues. Right, a lot of the Green New Deal is really about addressing climate by creating new public infrastructures. Right, mm. that is inclusive and equitable and open to all and solves a lot of the problems we were talking about a moment ago. So, I mean, I think between these two things- uh, And third one, I'm giving you three wishes. So my, well, my what third would be one the third is, piece? My third one, three wishes, very generous. Uh, my third one would be a democracy reform, right? Because we don't actually get, I don't think, any right. of these without a, a political system that actually empowers and responds to the needs of the most vulnerable, most affected, communities in our society. And that's not the system we have, right? Lots right. of people turned out in November, uh, overcoming enormous barriers, uh, legal barriers and uh, uh, health barriers from the from the pandemic. Uh, that's, you know, not good enough, right? We need a democracy system that actually makes it easier for people to be heard so that we can make these reforms to our economy and our, and our infrastructure. So, Bill, you guys, I wouldn't say you're in power, but you're certainly holding more cards than you did before uh, November the 3rd. There's a piece in The Atlantic today about stopping scapegoating progressives by Ingram X. Kendi, a well-known writer. Do progressives need to firstly uh, grow a, a thicker skin and certainly de develop a, a sense of humor? Because you guys are going to be under assault for at least the next four years. Everything Biden's doing will be uh, claimed to be socialist and, and, and people like yourself and AOC and Kendi are going to be vilified by the right wing media. How do you deal with that? I mean, look, there's always going to be opposition uh, to these ideas, in part because there are powerful interests who benefit from maintaining the, ex the status quo, right? The, the reason our inequalities are, are exacerbating in this COVID crisis is because it's big money for the Amazons of the world, for uh, the corporate class of the world. Um, so I think that's absolutely right. We need to keep pushing. Uh, but I also think it's important to know that there are a lot of folks who uh, kind of call themselves moderates or liberals or centrists who uh, the old ideas that seem kind of middle of the road for the 90s are just not up to par. They will not meet the, the crisis of the moment. And that's the other thing that really needs to be uh, pushed, which is that um, I'm all for sensible solutions, but the reality is that uh, the sensible solution is something like an essential workers bill of rights or something like a Green New Deal. Like these are policies that are designed for the crisis that we're in. Uh, and so it's not just like a, a wish list from the far left. These are the things that our communities actually need. Wow, this is a very important conversation. And I think uh, your position, uh, Sabil, is a very credible and important one for people to know about. Uh, you've got a couple of books, Civic Power and uh, uh, Democracy Against Domination. You also have some wonderful pieces, as I suggested earlier, in The Atlantic, Fixing America by Undoing Decades of Privatization. I think it's an essential read. That's how I was introduced to your work. You're in Brooklyn in these weird times in, uh, in early December 2020, locked down like the rest of us. What else, in addition to your work, should people be reading? 
So uh, uh, I'm a big science fiction fan as well. And so um, two books I'd offer, one for fun, one for history. Uh, uh, Ted Chang's book, Exhalation, is a great collection of short stories. Uh, uh, if folks saw the movie Arrival, as uh, based on one of his short stories. Um, and then history, which is very relevant to our current moment, um, Rick Perlstein's Reagan Land. Uh, if people read his previous book, Nixon Land, this is a sequel to it, uh, but really captures a lot of the early uh, uh, kind of uh, moves, policy moves and political moves that set up our current moment. Uh, and Rick so was on the show last week, so you're in good company, Sabil. Keep well, and we'll look forward to talking to you again very soon. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Con see you soon. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.